Up next on Episode 67 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the ethics of Craigslist, the pitfalls of customer-installable software, and caching for anonymous web users from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. This is Jeff. Hi, it's Michelle from Stickers R Us. <laughs> Did you get the stickers? You ordered 950 million stickers of <laughs> super <laughs> user how to... Did you guys already grok. get them? Yes. No, really? we got to a bunch. You sent me like 10 of each. Oh, yeah. That's just a sampler. I've the been putting them on people's foreheads. Yeah, the uh, the actual boxes of all the 10,000 stickers, minus some I took to have here, uh, should be arriving this week sometime. Cool. And, and since you brought it up, actually, yeah. let's talk about our fulfillment plan. So I think what we're going with, based on, previous, based on our previous discussion, is the self-addressed stamped envelope approach. To Zoom, Box 350 Boston, Mass 02134. Send it to Zoom. But it made more sense to do this uh, from Fog Creek because you have more of an actual... Right, and then Zoom doesn't even exist anymore. Zoom, a, Zoom doesn't exist. <laughs> hey, you alone. guys have an actual office. I just have pretty much my house. Yeah. Uh, so this way they can go to Fog Creek and you know your armies of uh, unpaid interns can spend all summer stuffing envelopes. Now, one thing I'm unclear about, though, is... It's not going to take all summer to stuff the envelopes. No, no, it doesn't take that long. Particularly if First of all, nobody wants these stupid stickers, Jeff. This is oh. all a figment of your imagination. Oh, that's where you're wrong, my friend. We're going to move to a sticker-based economy. Yeah, and... That'll be the currency. How many, new, how many stickers do they get when they send us an envelope? To, by the way, Fog Creek Software, 25th floor, 55 Broadway, New York, New York, 1006. Uh, I would imagine... Uh, since it's just a self-addressed stamped envelope thing, probably one of each. One of each, so they get four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, three. No, they get three. Oh, they don't get a How-To Geek sticker? Uh, no, I sent those directly to How-To Geek because I figured he would have plans for those. Yeah. Um, yeah, so exactly. Those are, He's going to use them to build in an extra room in his house. Just, yeah. Just exactly. slap them all together and make drywall. Yes, yeah, so you'll get one of each kind. You'll get three stickers. Now, one thing I'm unclear about, though, what about international... Readers. Well, I'm going to translate those stickers. So we have server fault becomes... That's great. No, what I mean is, how are they going to get a self-addressed stamped envelope in U.S. postage? Aha! That is a good question. There is a thing called an international postal reply coupon that you can buy at your post office. And you you send us one of those. You buy it at your post office and you send us one of those. And in fact, you should probably send us two or three because that's not for airmail. And they're sold at every post office in the world, and we'll wind up with a big pile of those, and we'll take them to our post office, and they'll give us a bunch of stacks, uh, stamps, stamps. Yes. I'm not sure I fully understood what you just said. <laughs> uh, there's a thing called an international postal reply coupon for this exact purpose. It's a little, okay. gr- I think it's green. It's a little piece of paper about two inches by three inches, and you buy them at the post office in your country for the price of one stamp. I see. So you go to the and post then- office, and you say, "I need an international business reply coupon, international postage reply coupon." And they sell you one of these things in local currency for whatever that uh, an international letter costs in your country. Could they also send? I know this is kind of. Uh, you can upon, send us but give, yes. You can send us a dollar bill taped to a three by five card. <laughs> that would probably work. And I, I guess if they send us a dollar, we'll we'll give them a, one or two more stickers since that's a little bit more than the actual postage. Well, actually, no, that's not true. For an international stamp, it's almost exactly one dollar. So that does work out because it's ninety-eight cents. It is really wow. That's the current rate. Darn, yeah, it's gone up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, mail's gotten really expensive. Yeah. So um, drop in an American one-dollar bill, or get the coupons, or one dollar in whatever your local currency is, because that'll be fun. We'll have a big old collection of different international <laughs> currencies here. So like that would be like nine million Zimbabwean rands or whatever they are. 
they have I in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Zimbabwe. Zimba- <sighs> Can we start over? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're, we're going to keep going. This okay. is good. Okay, plan I mean, this is it. the plan. This is the plan keep for the stickers. Plan through. All right. So self-dressed dance hall, if you want your stickers, we don't have them yet, but we will shortly have them delivered to our office, I believe. Um, and so Friday. you send a uh, – you take an envelope and you write on it your name and address, and you put a stamp in the upper right-hand corner. And if you can't buy an American stamp, you get either a postage reply coupon or about a buck. And you put all that in an envelope, send it to Fog Creek Software, um, 55 and, Broadway, 25th floor, New York, New York, 1006. Yes. And then you take a, uh, um, a, a Jeep Wrangler, the four-door edition, not the two-door edition, registered to Joel Spolsky. <laughs> put that on a truck and send it over to my house. I don't think you could really use that in New York City, could you? Um, Sure. Hey, so that covers stickers, which is good because I'm a big believer in stickers, even though you mock stickers. them. They're actually list checked. Done. Yes. yes. Got it. Uh, Are you kidding? Well, I can't see half my screen because all the stickers I put on there. <laughs> I'm not yeah, leave some room for, you know, solitaire or whatever you run there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had some pointed criticism actually the last podcast and that there was some repetition. I know you said that some repetition is okay, but in apparently very, last episode podcast? Was like a like, high water mark for repetition. Uh, I don't want to name any names, but it was you. <laughs> well, tell me what it is. So let's repeat it one more time. That's going to happen, uh, dude. This is like this is like okay. radio. This is not like every episode is a standalone, carefully designed essay and perfection. You know, this is like uh, you know, I got my spiel's and you push the whatever button and that spiel number twenty six comes yeah, out. You know, my problem is I don't fully listen to you, so I don't actually even know when you're repeating yourself because I probably didn't hear it the first time. That's my little joke. Is yeah, it? because I don't listen. <laughs> I'm not a good judge of when you're actually repeating yourself, so it's hard for me to. Uh, All right, so let's not repeat the rare repetition. Repeat. Let's not. Let's just let's just let that sleeping dog lie, but rather than making it worse by repeating it a third time. <laughs> it's all about I have no ability to make new memories in my old age. So. Well, you have some good stories, but I think you got to make sure you stock up on the stories. This is the problem with story-based storytelling. I mean, you're you're actually the master. I don't really do story-based stuff. You do that, but I think the downside of the story-based stuff is yep. you know. Sometimes what I need to do is go back to the well stop. and the problem. I need to just stop <laughs> writing and telling stories. And well, you just got to keep having new stories. I mean, that's not possible. So I, Things don't happen to me fast enough. That's why I think you should re-enlist in the Israeli army because I feel like <laughs> that was the, the the really fertile period for the stories from Joel. Was the Israeli army stuff was awesome. Did Huge I ever tell you? Here. All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So one thing we had left over from last week that we can just start with, if you don't no, mind. Let's is, do it. You have a whole rant. And actually, I think this was a private rant. I think you did this offline. But I think it's really interesting. And there was this big Wired article, The Tragedy of Craigslist, right? And yeah. I found out about it because my name is in it. And people were like, oh, my God, your name is in this article. And I was like, what? <laughs> so your name was in that article because you had written sort of a Craigslist scraper. That is that what it was that attempted to combine different cities well, no, well no, 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 let me, let, me, let me take a step back. What I did was very ethical, I think. Let me explain what I did, and you, the, the audience, can be the judge of whether it was or well, was not. Well, we're not here to judge you. We're here to judge Craigslist. You're, you're <laughs> off the hook. You've got a free pass, let me, man. Let me just tell, let me tell my little story. Yeah. So I had a problem, which was that in 2005, I was at a sort of an inflection point in my career, and I wanted to find the ideal company to work for. I felt like... Now, I will choose the company. And we've talked about this in the podcast. I think you reach a point in your career where you decide you get to decide where you work. You're not going to be that feather floating through the air, randomly taking whatever jobs happen to be there. You're going to actually court, seek out companies like Fog Creek or you know, Microsoft or Google, or wherever it is you think is the right place for you. You're going to actively seek out that company. Mm-hmm. So in order to do this, I was using Craigslist uh, to sort of figure out like first what was available out there. Mm-hmm. So I needed a way because I was willing to move anywhere in the country. Really? Right. Yeah, anywhere. I, I, I was willing to move anywhere. For the right, if it was the right job, the right opportunity, I'll move. Uh, so that put me in a weird position with Craigslist because Craigslist, everything is very siloed in these city silos. Right. You know, there's like San Francisco, there's Austin, there's Boston. There's but when you every- go to the chat, they, 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 they seem to have like two modes in, the little, in their little discussion things, one that's like global and one that's local. Have you noticed that? In chats? Yeah, when you go into like the, the you know, the, the conversations that take place on Craigslist, hmm. there's there's two little buttons. You can either look at but you're right, it's generally siloed, but like if you go into the you know, the housing chat or something, there's 
people from all over the country talking, and then you can click a little button and just see your local. I didn't know they had, like, a chat function. That's, like, new to me. Yeah. What? Really? Yeah. There's, like, a so, whole forum thing there. So that was my problem. So I yeah. had a problem. My problem was uh, Craigslist was a great resource. I think it's declined somewhat since then. Uh, but at the time, it was a very viable uh, place to look for good tech jobs. Uh, but I wanted to look across the entire United States. So I, I wrote a program mm -hmm. that responsibly would query Craigslist. I was using actually compressed requests and I throttled and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it let me search all U.S. cities to, to see what kind of jobs there were that fit my criteria. Right. So I just had a problem. I was trying to solve it using Craigslist. And I thought I had a very legitimate use case. I'm actually looking for a job. I'm going to the job listings and I'm looking for a job, but I want to do it at the national level because I am willing to move anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I made this tool available because I was like, oh, this is a great tool. I was like, other people might have the same requirement. Sure. You know, they're willing to move anywhere. So I made it public on my website. I said, oh, this is a cool little tool. Let you, you know, use Craigslist in a new way. Uh -huh. uh, and it quickly got shut down because they monitor. Craigslist is very, very uh, militant about monitoring things that go on with Craigslist. Mm -hmm. And rapidly it got shut down. I don't, think, I don't think it had that much traffic. Mm -hmm. But, and then for a while I played that game of, all right, you know, the programmer game where you've pissed me off and now I'm going to use proxies and I'm going to try to get around your, you know, blocking. But eventually I realized that it wasn't worth it. It was just too much effort on my end and I didn't care. You know, eventually I found a job that I liked and I stopped, sort of stopped needing this tool. And I wasn't really willing to fight with Craigslist over this. Right. Um, and the guy, Jim Buckmaster, I guess, was actually the guy who stepped in and I think he emailed me and you know, said, you have to stop doing this. And, um, and that's what got mentioned in Wired was okay. the service that you search nationwide. There's a lot of people who have done this. I mean, John C. Dvorak's son had a thing called uh, Craig Finder. Dot com that got shut down, or Craig's Finder with without an ER, you know, and and uh, he, it was the same thing. It was search across sites, and they shut him down in about ten minutes. And it was yeah. just, uh, it was just like I think it just did a search across the sites and opened up a bunch of windows. You know, it wasn't even that sophisticated. Um, but I think Craigslist in that case, it's not the scraping that they mind; it's that they fundamentally believe in the very core of their soul that these are local sites; that they have to be local; that it's evil to search across them. Like that's they just decided that that this is local and that's the way it's going to work and that's the way they want it. They don't want search across Craigslist to be an option. Right. No, they, um, they totally stepped in. I mean, that that was pretty much the the rationale that I was given too. Was yeah. that even though I felt my use case was totally legitimate. Well, they don't uh, care. For, they, they, they 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 don't might care. Think your right. use case is equivalent too. They just don't want to let you do it because they want those sites to be like independent individual city sites. That's right. Um, and they don't care. I, I is don't like even, the, the operative phrase. Right. <laughs> Like totally. They're perfectly happy to let you search across Craigslist, just not on Craigslist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but, you know, I I have had generally positive experiences with Craigslist. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I found, in 2005, I found the job that ended up being the job at Vertigo, right. um, which is a great job. Uh, I enjoyed usually, that job. Yeah, I mean, it has sort of become, I mean, in, in certain categories, in certain cities, uh, it's pretty pretty much like the, the dominant classified ads system. So things that used to be in newspapers like Help Wanted um, and apartments and, you know, a little bit of exchange of stuff, but mostly Help Wanted and apartments, which used to pay the bills for the newspapers, have pretty much 100% moved to Craigslist. And it's embarrassing how few ads, classified ads there are left in, in newspapers anymore. But I think this is why I don't – and I think you really object to Craigslist, and that, that surprised me. Well, that, there, there is something that I object to, which I kind of think – look, um, there, there used to be this – we used to have this social deal with the newspapers. And the social deal was they ran this big money-making advertising business. And in exchange, they spent a little bit of their own money uh, doing some investigative reporting to make democracy work. Because democracy mm -hmm. doesn't work if nobody pays any other. The reason that Turkmenistan has such bad governance – and Zimbabwe has such bad governance and North Korea has such bad governance is that there's no free press to find out what the hell our politicians are doing and, and, and to, to kind of expose them to a little bit of light, right? It's sort of like that you look under a rock and there's a bunch of bugs there, but you shine a little light on it and they all kind of disappear. That's, that's really kind of the role of journalism. And journalism, weirdly enough, we've had a social system. I don't know why. It's just a coincidence where advertising which is like 60% classified advertising has paid for that part of democracy, which is a shame. I mean, in, in, it doesn't always work that way, but it's a, it's a fundamental part of democracy and, and, and it's been paid for by classified ads. And Craigslist basically said, well, we'd like to do the classified ads 
And we're not going to keep up that other part of the social contract, which is using the revenues from that to do journalism. <laughs> and it's really hard to say that there's something really wrong with this. It's, it's very hard to, to argue against, to say, well, that, that's evil. They didn't keep up their part of the bargain because there was no explicit bargain. But the net result is that the, city newspa the, the newspapers are having to cut to the bone. And, and they're, what they're cutting, especially in big city newspapers in America, is investigative journalists. And what's happening now is that a fundamental pillar of democracy is, is basically starving and is falling apart. And we're not going to notice for a while because what will happen is that more and more, um, what are they called? Yes, politicians will be able to get away with more and more corrupt things, and we'll just get worse and worse governance because nobody's paying any attention to this. It's well, not wait, wait, wait. really Craigslist's fault, but it is the result of uh, all, all, um, job ads and uh, real estate ads moving to Craigslist from the newspapers. But wait, on some level, isn't this the same argument that Wikipedia can't work because it's not you know, an official encyclopedia, it's not written by professionals? I mean, isn't this sort of the argument that Things that were done by so-called professionals are now going to be done by amateurs. But they're not being done by amateurs. If they were being done by amateurs, that'd be awesome. But show me an amateur that's doing investigative reporting of politicians. I mean, that's what – I'm sure that Dave Weiner used to tell people that the bloggers would do that, and they didn't, lo and behold. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, journalists that tried to get into blogging and try to – try to do that or something but they're not i mean the best journalist slash blogger you know people like maybe andrew sullivan just sits around and writes opinions about things and pokes at things he never once picks up the phone and makes a call to see if something is true or not they're not they don't even do you know the most basic five minutes of actual investigation or reporting they just link to each other this feels so much like the argument that encyclopedias should be written by you know no i'm not PhDs. saying that journalism should be done by pros i would love for journalism to be done by amateurs but it's not I wouldn't object to amateurs doing journalism. They're just not doing journalism, so it's not happening. So nobody is doing journalism, so there's absolutely no watchdog that's, that's shining light on our politicians. And so let's get back to Craigslist here. Now, this is not Craigslist's fault that they only picked up one half of the social norm. But one of the good things that came out of Craigslist, of course, is that they could somehow get away with not charging for all these classified ads because they didn't have that expensive journalism operation to to run. So they basically said, hey, we're doing a community service by letting people place ads for jobs and houses and the junk that they want to sell and the sexual hookups that they want to hook up for free. And this is presumably a social good because those people used to have to pay to get those ads in the newspaper. Uh, and that, again, is completely within their rights. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of people that have tried to buy Craigslist in order to monetize it. And if somebody owned Craigslist and was willing to actually start charging a little bit, not a lot, for the ads that are up there, uh, they could be making billions. Well, um, I also got the impression that you sort of objected to the, the fact that no money was being generated from this. Like that was some, some sort of societal wrong that somebody was choosing to expend this energy yeah. in a way that generates no well, that's, money. Well, no that's kind force. of like, okay, so this is tricky here, right? Because I, I, I'm certainly not going to say, hey, if they want to I, I agree that if Craig says, hey, I want to do this charity for the world of letting everybody have free classified ads, uh, and the only place where Craigslist charges is in a couple of narrow areas where they found, not because they need the money, but they found that if they made them completely free, that people would post all kinds of garbage, and you have to charge at least a little bit to keep people from posting all kinds of garbage. So they charge a nominal amount for job listings in the Bay Area, and they charge a nominal amount for real estate listings in a couple of cities where the real estate market is really competitive. But, um, and and that's, how, that's how they, they finance themselves, and that's already highly profitable for them and more power to them. But they could be charging a little bit for just about everything that's on that site, and they don't. And certainly if a, if a, if a company like uh, you know, eBay has wanted to buy Craigslist for a long time, there are a lot of companies that would just love to be able to buy this and start charging. Uh, and they would spend billions for that because when they started charging, they could even charge a nominal amount and be making, uh, like I say, billions of dollars. Okay. And Craig says, no, I would like this social good to be free. I, and, I, and I am doing, I don't know if Craig, but Craigslist says, I am doing this as a, you know, a charitable benefit for the world. And I choose to create the following charitable benefit, free classified listing all over the world. Uh, now, again, completely within his rights, but where it becomes uh, less than optimal or where it has a bad outcome 
is that what he's basically saying is I could sell this whole site for a billion dollars, but I don't need a billion dollars. And Craig says this all the time. I don't know what I would spend that on. And the answer is spend it on something that's actually a deserving cause. You know, you don't necessarily have to spend it on what the newspaper spend it on, which is journalism, although that would be a good thing to spend it on because that is actually why we have a democracy instead of living in a country like Turkmenistan or Zimbabwe. But spend it on, uh, you know, spend it on some other social good. The, 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 so when, when Craig says, I don't care about money, he's, he thinks that he's being sort of generous and charitable and stuff. And what he's really saying is that for me, the best possible social good that could come out of that billion dollars would be giving people free classified ads and killing the newspaper business. That's the social good I want to spend the billion dollars of value that I've created on. And when you say, well, what about malaria in Africa or AIDS or, or, or democracy or any number of other things, all you got to do is sell Craigslist and spend that money on one of those other things. You don't have to keep the money. Don't want to keep the money. You don't have to keep the money. Probably shouldn't. But when you say, I've decided just to keep Craigslist mostly for free and not to sell out, so to speak, what you're really saying is, I've decided to spend the billion dollars in value that I created on eliminating newspapers by giving people free journalism. Because effectively, that is what, hap that is what has happened. And, and failing to decide to sell Craigslist is the same as actively deciding that you want to destroy journalism as we know it. And by by uh the as a sort of secondary effect of that democracy so you're saying it's a it's a passivity that becomes sort of anarchism where you're mm, yeah. by choosing to do nothing you're you're kind of destroying things that is a choice choosing to do nothing is is, is choosing there is a default option that will happen and the default option for craigslist is that all that value that got created by craig by inventing craigslist and creating craigslist and growing that community all that value is all being spent on giving a bunch of prostitutes in New Orleans free advertising capabilities. <laughs> That's not the only thing that happens on Craigslist. You're also giving a bunch of real estate brokers who make $60,000 when they sell a condo in New York. You're also giving them a free ad instead of, or a $10 ad instead of what they used to be willing to pay for it, which was $350. And you're also giving a whole bunch of job employers the ability to put up ads when they would be perfectly happy you know, from their $50,000 recruiting budget. Now they have to pay zero to place a job ad instead of what they used to have to pay, which was $450 or whatever a newspaper would charge. And um, essentially, when you look at every single one of these cases, it is a great community service that is being done here. You, he is, Craig is handing out money to a bunch of people who now get something for free that they used to have to pay for, and that's awesome, but it is a decision. And the decision was that those are the people that are deserving of all this value, of all this extra value, as opposed to something that you could have decided conscientiously, maybe there's something else to do. And what he's taking that money away from is journalism, which I think is an underpinning of democracy. And I feel like he has at least a minor ethical, it's almost like he's accidentally knocked off journalism, not intentionally, but a side effect of what he's done has been to, you know, shoot journalism in the head. And now he sort of has a little bit of, you know, doesn't have a direct obligation, but if he was really a highly ethical person, he would be thinking about how can I take some of this wealth that I've created and use it to recreate the very important institution which I've shot in the head inadvertently, accidentally, as a result of building but a I, website. But I kind of feel like the newspapers kind of shot themselves in the head, though. I, I don't eh, feel like... Maybe. I well, mean, it's easy to vilify... Eventually, you know, somebody would have. No, I don't want to vilify him. I just want to say that he has inadvertently... It's basically a, a negative side effect of what he's done, an accidental negative side effect. Somebody else would have done it anyway. It was going to happen. Sure, the newspapers shot themselves in the head. Fine, whatever. It was all... You can find a million people to blame. But really, it's the loss of classified advertising revenue caused directly by the Internet. 90% of that is Craigslist, if not 99%. And that is uh, – and you know, there are other things that have been hurting the newspapers. It's not just that. And so that means that all this value that's been created in Craigslist, I feel like Craig kind of owes us a little bit of something. Because if the big city newspapers shut down um, you know, in all the second-tier cities that right now only barely have one newspaper kind of hanging on – um, then, uh, then those cities are just going to literally, they're going to go the way of, of, you know, Baltimore and New Orleans and Bridgeport, Connecticut. They're just going to become corrupt cities with no free newspaper that can actually investigate what the hell's going on. I don't know about that. I mean, I just don't, I think that's a very wide ranging conclusion to, to reach from, from Craigslist. I mean, I, I, I can see what you're getting at, which is that it's, it's, 
it's a weird dynamic because Craigslist is not a nonprofit organization, right? Mm-hmm. They're this sort of minimal profit organization, which is even weirder if you really think about it. I mean, Wikipedia, right. one of the big reasons Wikipedia works, uh, going back to the you know encyclopedia example, is because it is a nonprofit. I mean, that's a public good. Mm-hmm. But they haven't said, hey, we're a public good. They're some, you know, weird entity that isn't really a business, isn't really, you know, uh, up for yeah. the public good. Well, so what reason, is it really for? The reason that's so weird is because if you're going to, leave money on the table, to use an awkward business expression, if there's money or value in a business and you decide just not to take it, not for strategic business reasons, for ethical reasons, for because you feel like this is the right ethical thing to do, then um, that, that's kind of unusual because usually what people in business do is say, all right, let me take the money and then I'll spend it. You do what Bill Gates did. You, you take the money that all, of all that value that you created and you spend it on things that are more deserving. So, for example... Um, you know, and this is really, these are real broad strokes, but if you're Bill Gates, basically what he's done with his life is said, instead of making the operating system free and giving everybody a free operating system for whatever good social value that would have, instead I'm going to charge as much as I possibly can for the operating system and use all that money to cure a million diseases and to, you know, to fight against malaria in Africa and so on and so forth. So he's basically saying, look, as long as these businesses are willing to spend on this thing, let's take their money and let's give it to some charity that we approve of. Don't just let them have it because then the charity becomes, you know, IBM and the charity becomes Arthur Anderson who's ever getting these free operating systems. Why are they, they a deserving charity? Well, couldn't you make similar sort of arguments about like Linux and things like that? Yeah. Where, you know. Sort of. I don't know. You know, uh, yeah, that, that is the argument I'm making. Uh, because they're, you know, they're taking something that had value and, and removing the, the value. value from that market. Well, there, there are st- the, 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 differ- the difference in the Linux story is that it's sort of a, a, a volunteer effort in the sense that they're sort of saying they're actually creating value because they've taken away the value. Like the value wouldn't be there if they weren't going to then give it away. People right, because Craigslist isn't open sourced. I mean, we don't have input into how Craigslist is run right. at all. I mean, right. I think that's probably the core of the, sort of the, the issue with Craigslist is it's in this weird no man's land. I think the core of the issue is they took a business that used to be a multi-billion dollar business and they made it into a $10 million business, which is awesome. It's their right. But with all that devastation of value, they could have... Well, that's such a... No, no, no. I, I, I don't accept that. Because, I mean, if it wasn't Craigslist, it would have been someone else. I mean, oh, that it, is this true. was, this that was is true. destined that doesn't to change happen. It. It was destined this was to going to happen, and, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, and I wish that that nice guy actually thought about the social implications of this, which he does, I think, and so that's why I think he'll probably come around and said, you know what, now that I've destroyed that billion dollars of value, I need to figure out how to give some of it back and do a little bit at least of something that is, is a social good other than just free classified ads. If it's such a social good, it can't be that vulnerable. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, logically. That if the newspapers was really? such this, you know, great public good, yeah. but they were so vulnerable and so fragile that, like, a, because one what guy, we do, what we discovered is that it's so that's crazy. Well, what do you what do you mean? One guy has destroyed lots of industries on the internet. Oh, that's not no. There was something fundamentally wrong with the industry. If one guy there was there was we discovered there was a weak point. Journalism had a weak point, which is that what was holding up that part of our democracy, the journalism part of our democracy, the the pillar that was holding that up, turned out to be display and classified advertising, and especially classified ads. I mean, they make a ton of money for the newspapers. And when that piece of the revenue disappeared for the newspapers, suddenly we realized, wait a minute, there's an important part of our democracy here that we got as an accident because we happened to have these newspapers that got created that happened to think that it was a good idea to take the profit that they made from classified ads and spend it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I, I don't buy this. Okay, how do newspapers make money? They're, they're page view based, right? They want to have stories. That if it bleeds, it leads, right? Uh, newspapers this... make money from advertising. Right, but, they, in order, and but how, do you, sell, how do you sell advertising? What kind of stories? Do you, do you sit in on a city council meeting and write down all the notes? Yeah. Is that what sells newspapers? Uh, no, that was a public service that they did, bizarrely. But nobody read that part. That's no, what I'm but telling. it doesn't matter because when the city council did something corrupt, then they did read it. Yes, that's exciting. But there were still people who <laughs> will dig to find those stories. Page views still sell, I don't think right? so. I don't, tell me who's digging. Tell me, tell me who's digging in these cities okay, that don't have let's newspapers go, anymore. Let's go with sex scandal. I mean, yeah. what blog, like Gawker or some stupid new blog like that, would love to break a sex scandal with They would love to, but all they want to do is link to something that somebody else did the legwork for. They're not going to pick but up the phone. But eventually, they're only be getting enough. $10 for a, for a story. 
but eventually there's going to be enough competitive pressure, there's going to be enough eyeballs on the street that are going to, you know, have enough information about this sexual indiscretion. Yeah. Somebody's going to have pictures. Eventually it's going to wind its way back rather than one professional stalking if his friend. that was the case, I would be all for it. I, I, I don't I just haven't seen that yet. I mean, they haven't seen these great breaking stories being done by real journalistic. Well, that's because, I mean, we're still in the throes of this transition, right? Maybe. I mean, we're, we're, this is the very beginning of the change of, of this whole model. So you're saying nothing to worry about. The government, the, the watchdogs will be these independent bloggers. We'll, we'll watch our politicians and keep them honest. You, when the newspapers stop doing that. Well, I think you're going with an all-or-nothing proposition. I'm not saying that it's it's a hundred percent overlap, but I'm saying that some percentage of what they do that we cared about, yeah, will continue to go on because there's just financial incentive for it to happen. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah, I don't like, think there was. I think there was something very strange about the newspapers, and that they did this. They just happened to be doing this because they always did it this way, and that they don't actually like they actually like the, the great newspapers that were, were owned by these big families. They weren't very strongly profit oriented. Uh, they, they were they were very very social minded compared to say Craigslist, in the sense that they felt a certain obligation to to do journalism to support democracy. Is what I think. I don't know. I just don't have this rose tinted view of the newspapers that you. You do. must never I mean, have I've... watched Lou Grant. <laughs> I just feel like they're sort of out for their their business model. You know, I mean, sure. they're a business like any other business, and. I mean, certainly we can point to good and bad examples, but I, I don't think it's a cut and dried, you know, clear public good. No, Every it's not, newspaper. It, nothing, is, nothing is cut and dried. There's kind of a million exceptions. But anyway, that is my objection to Craigslist. Right. Would it happen? Yes, I agree. Would it happen anyway? Now, yes, there is, I agree. There is, yeah. there is something a little bit diabolical. I mean, there's things, things that you're saying that I will tentatively agree with, which is that there's something a little bit diabolical about giving people exactly what they want, which is... Let me place classified ads at no cost to anyone. Right. Right. And in, in the process of doing that, you're, you're kind of destroying something, right? But you're getting exactly what you want. I mean, it can, as a consumer, wh why would you possibly complain about that? Right. And this is the classic, you know, packed with Satan. You know, he gives you exactly what you're asking for. It, but you, don't, you right. don't understand the consequences of what you're asking for. Well, part of the problem, which you can sort of see, is a lot of uh, spam. Uh, yes. or, or like, especially, I don't think they've ever a been able to to fully solve the problem of the real estate agents in New York and the way that. But they you know, this is something we do have to touch on because even back when I was you know messing around with Craigslist and looking in detail at what they were doing, it was clear that the system that Craigslist has has put on the web is like a petri dish for building the perfect spammer. Like, I mean, <laughs> anything, seriously, it's crazy. I, I had a whole blog entry about this where I actually researched it, but because it's free, because there's no barrier to entry, and yet at the same time, they want to protect the sanctity of, of the, the listings and stuff, there's this war, this raging war going on between, you know, Craigslist has become a, a force of nature, right? It, it's, it, there's huge amounts of money to be made in exploiting the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a small company. I mean, it's 30 people at Craigslist. And yeah. they control, they get more page views Less than like than Amazon and eBay. Yeah. yeah. So the, the war is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, certain categories are just supposedly 90% spam now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not at all clear that they're going to actually win this war. Um, right. and, and I think you hit on a key phrase, which was they have to charge money to, to, put the, to, to make certain categories work. And I think over time you might see them charge money just because they're, eventually they're going to lose, I think. Unless they start charging money for every category that they list. That's true. I mean, there is an enormous practical benefit to having a little bit of money that you charge. Even yes. if it's just a dollar and you just need a credit card, that eliminates 98% of the bad behavior. It does. Uh, and I think over time, except maybe in like the, the markets that nobody cares about, um, for the things that matter, I think they're going to lose. Right. Uh, there's just way too many people waking, making way too much money, uh, and, and they are truly breeding the perfect spammer. I mean, they have all these really clever countermeasures, but when you know you're talking about free, and you know anybody can post anything, yeah, um, the floor is so low. Okay, Craigslist. Enough about that. People are going to forget that this is a uh, <laughs> website. Well, it, it is an interesting topic to me because you know this yeah. does relate a little bit. Let's relate this back to Stack Overflow. Yeah. Was that certainly I looked at Wikipedia and I've looked at Google and I've looked at Craigslist as as you know they to certain models. yeah models models right. that we looked right. at as far as how we could build a business and what would the effect of that business be. Right. And in fact, somebody posted a meta question about how we were. It's not true, but it's just an interesting 
if wrong way to think about this, that we have some sort of predatory type pricing where we're actually competing with other sites that do Q&A. Yeah. Uh, but at no cost. But those know. sites are predatory sites that predate, <laughs> predatize, predatize, predate, predate. You're just in words. Sorry. Those sites are predatory sites that prey on the innocent users that provide free content and then try to make money off of other people's answers and questions. Yes. No, no, there's, there's, there, so the whole argument is, is kind of flawed. But, but, it, but it is interesting to think about uh, the idea that we are trying to affect right. the way money is made in Q&A. Correct. Um, there is, and I there's think really, it's that... not even, for me, well, let me just clarify. So for me, it's not even about the money part. It's about letting the community actually own this. I mean, that's the good part of Wikipedia, Right? right, it's that it's truly a. It's a nonprofit, which we're not. But uh, b, the community really does kind of run Wikipedia. You can make a very real actually thing. a very nasty clique of people at the center of the community runs Wikipedia. Uh, well, that's starting to be true of Stack Overflow as well. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> we hope that's not true. Do we want to talk about that this week? No, never mind. No. All right, I got a <laughs> list of things on my on my list to talk about. So, I, I, um, so we should move on from this topic of... Sure, of, sure. No, I just want to tie it to, because I think it is topical. I mean, certainly yeah. our flagging system is derived from Craigslist, and we look at a lot of stuff they do. So, sure, anyway. sure. I, I think the reason it originally came up when you and I were just chatting is that I said, listen, you don't... I mean, you can, you're, you're welcome to, quote-unquote, leave money on the table, or you're welcome to do things for free that you could literally charge for. But when you do that, you have to be aware that you're making a conscientious decision to spend. It's almost as if you were spending your charitable dollars on that particular thing that you're not charging for instead of all those other things that you could spend your charitable dollars on or, or your, you know. Right. So if you, if you want to do good in the world and you happen to be sitting on a business that's worth billions of dollars, take the billions of dollars and do billions of dollars worth of good in the world instead of just giving away your crap for free, necessarily. Uh, still don't entirely agree with that. I think okay. the, the mis- just real br- one sentence, one final sentence. Yeah, the mistake Craigslist made is that the community has no input in what they're doing at all. That's Craigslist true. They really is completely are not opaque. Yeah, yeah. That's the key mistake that they made. I think you could be like Craigslist, but say, "Hey, we really are going to let the community drive what Craigslist is." I could have my tool that lets me search across the U.S., which I thought was totally rational, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. Okay, there you go. Stack Exchange status. Oh yeah, I'm going through my list of things that I want to talk about this week. Do you have a list? I'll do my list first. Stack Exchange is this hosted. Otherwise known as a white label version of Stack Overflow, uh, it is now in beta. There's a bunch of sites already uh, showing up. We got the first beta testers online. We've got a long list of people, and we're working on signing them up for betas as fast. Did as you fix the color scheme for yeah. that business travel site? Yeah. What, what does fix mean? Go look at it. You tell me if you like it. Everybody, well, that was like a crime against my eyeballs. Oh, stop! That was you bad. could do any color scheme in the world, and people would be like, "No." Nah. <laughs> do you guys have like? Uh, let yeah, me tell you, color, color schemes. Scheme. Okay, color schemes really, really hard. Yeah. Having done. Three of them. I it know, and brutal. yours are terrible. Oh. By the way, <laughs> super easy. Well, first of all, first of all, while we're speaking about bad color schemes, I think that the um, using color to indicate whether a question is answered or not, uh, yes. and one of them was accepted, is yes. just makes it confusing because there just wind up being a lot of colors over there in that second column, and you don't really know what they all mean. It's okay. hard to remember what they all mean. It's just confusing. I've right. always found it. Like you go to any site, like if you go to Business to Travel where you don't know what the color scheme is, the site, by the way, is biztravel.stackexchange.com. And it's not, a, it's not really a real site, although if it turns into one, that would be awesome. But it's uh, sort of meant to be a, um, uh, just sort of a test bed, a little bit of dog fooding here um, mm-hmm. for uh, Stack Exchange. And uh, um, because there are sort of different, there's three different colors that you're using over there in that second column. It's impossible for anybody to really learn which the colors are, especially because we're not really consistent about them across sites. I would say it would probably be better to have a visual indicator, like maybe a little check mark or something that indicates when something's been answered. Well, you guys can do that. Code. I mean, that's not required that you use the sure. background color. Yeah, and we probably will. Uh, what else did I want to say? Also, there's apparently a million colors in the site, and we tried to reduce the number that you actually had to configure on Stack Exchange because we don't want to make you choose 3,700 colors or whatever right. the number, total number of colors are in that CSS file. Um, so I think what we do is we ask you to pick six colors as a basis, and then we calculate other colors as sort of You, you know what you guys mixes. need? Let me, let, me, let me take this full circle. You guys need to have a contest for colors. Like, you need to have a contest or you need to have real designers yeah. come up with color schemes. That's okay. the only way we're going to get good schemes. color schemes. Yeah. You need to have a contest or you need to have actual designers 
And I think you should have some. Well, we sort of choices. tried. There was a thing. There's a, thing, there's a website called Cooler where people submit color schemes, and we sort of started with some of those colors, but that didn't really work. And colors, colors is hard, you know. This freaking too, hard, man. Yeah. Okay, it's really hard. Let's move on. Yes. Here, I got an interesting question here. Oh, I got, I got a stupid question. Let me well, finish well, my stupid well, question. Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let me finish up with colors. I mean, the, the reason this is hard is because you're, you're putting this in the hands of people that are probably not equipped to solve this really hard problem. So a, as somebody who provides a service, it is your responsibility, in my humble opinion, to actually come up with good defaults for people. So well, I'm not, not doing that for free. So I'm going to charge $350 for my color picking. But this is this is the this is the, your business model. I mean, it, it is your business model to make this easy for people to do the right thing and not come up with color schemes like the yes. one that assaulted my eyeballs. Okay, okay, we'll work on not assaulting your eyeballs. Yes. Anyway, can you? Okay. Um, uh, here's here's a dumb little thing that I just wanted to mention because we got these Stack Overflow Dev Days things coming up, and I did, went ahead and booked like lots and lots of speakers. So in some cities, we have like, I think, seven or eight different talks that we have to fit into eight hours. It's going to be crazy. And in order to make sure that people sit down and shut up at the right time, at the beginning, at exactly 9 a.m., because I'm going to be a complete Italian when it comes to train schedules. No. German? What's the word for somebody that's really obsessive? Swiss. I'm going to be Swiss about starting on time. I want there to be a big, gigantic clock up on the screen. At the, mm-hmm. When you come in and you sit down, that says, Stack Overflow Dev Days will start in seven minutes and 23 seconds. So I was looking around for a little app to do that, and you can't really find good apps to do that. It's basically a full-screen app that just does a countdown timer and looks cool. It's just actually kind of cool. And I thought this would be a free and awesome opportunity for all the programmers that play around on Stack Overflow and all the people coming to the show and all the... It's a pretty easy thing to write, and it's just a way to kind of show off your graphical programming talents. So I thought I'd mention that. So I posted that on meta.stackoflow.com somewhere. Yep. It's a meta. And I'll link that in the show notes so people can find it. Com countdown app. There's a 550. That seems to be a bug, but it's a question number 20420. Why did it get 550? I gave it 500, the bounty. It, it throws in 50 from the system. Oh, the system puts in 50. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, you can earn a bunch of, cr- of points on meta.stackoflow.com, which sounds kind of worthless. And uh, if, you, if you win... <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined our economic system. You've revealed that it's worthless. Why do you need points on Meta? Anyway, okay. Uh, there's already a couple of uh, a couple of uh, no, there's three there's three submissions in there. None of which typical programmers. None of which actually matches the spec. Um, but they're getting there. Um, so uh, so uh, write uh, write an app. The easier it is uh, to demo, the more likely people are to vote on it. Whatever the number one voted uh, app is that shows up on there. Um, we'll Have you been providing comments explaining why they're not meeting your spec? To, well, they know. I blame, I blame your spec. The, they know. They're all like, well, this doesn't exactly conform because it's uh, oh, a web app. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic. That's a classic Stack Overflow answer, by the way. Yeah. This doesn't really answer what you wanted, but I'm just going to tell you what I want to tell <laughs> but you. But I have an answer for you, so I'm just going <laughs> to use it. Anyway, maybe with this podcast, more people will go in there and demonstrate their cool graphical programs. I mean, I'm imagining the kind of things that you can do with uh, Quartz or WPF or whatever that new thing is on the, on the Mac or, you know, like one of these cool pro- graphical programming environments. I mean, even just with WPF, you could do some pretty friggin' cool, amazing things and make it look really, really, really nice. Yes. And uh, show off your skills, and your name will be up there in front of an audience of hundreds of local geeks. And uh, and uh, how long can it take anyway? So yes, make sure it has lots of electrolytes. Joel wants code with lots of electrolytes. That's right. I feel already electrolyted up the wazoo. And the last thing which I wanted to talk about is, um, and this is just sort of general conversation kind of thing. So when we uh, when we were thinking about how to let people make their own Stack Exchange sites, we realized that there would be people that would want to use Stack Exchange internal to their company as a local, as an internal knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we've gotten a lot of queries about that. And so basically the way that we, we priced that without thinking too much about it is we said, all right, it's... Um, what do we say? Twenty five hundred a month stack exchange. I can't remember. It just shows how common this is. Yeah, twenty five hundred dollars a month for a server. So basically, you pay us twenty five hundred dollars a month to rent a server, a totally decked out Dell twenty eight fifty with multiple CPUs and twenty nine fifty, whatever the latest one is. Um, you know, four gigs of memory already pre installed with the Windows Server and SQL Server, which is expensive, and stack. Uh, the Stack Overflow code is all pre-installed on there and working perfectly, and we ship you that, and you punch in your IP address, and boom, you've got a Stack Overflow server in your company. And uh, the way we're thinking of charging for that is just bill 
bill on a monthly basis, basically. So as long as you want it, you keep it. And when you're sick of it, you send us back the box and we send it to someone else. So that was a theory. And, and I just thought I'd, I'd chat with you about that because it seems like a weird way to sell software. Having It's basically called the appliance model. Um, it's, I mean, you're really driving this part of the business. I don't really have an opinion about that. I mean, it, uh, my opinion is if it works and people buy it, then do it. Well, the traditional <laughs> right? way is to just actually give them the software and let them put it on their server and it's their problem. No, no, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of annoying. I mean, you know that's annoying from selling fog bugs, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, so here's the pros and cons. You know more about this than I do. That's the bottom line. Continue. I guess I kind of know something. I mean, this is just yeah. selling software. It's a standard thing. Do you sell software or do you, start to, do you actually sell an individual hardware device that does what you want? So, uh, okay, the problems with selling software are that we would have to make some kind of a setup app and walk you through the setup process. And that actually takes a lot of engineering work. And the setup app would have about a million ways of failing because we wouldn't know anything about the server you were going to put it on, although we could tell you it has to be such and such a server. You know, People don't necessarily do that. So there's one example is that people take fog bugs, for example, which is meant to run on any Windows server, and they throw it on their Exchange server for some reason. Well, c- couldn't you just give them like a virtual machine? I mean, wouldn't that be easier? Uh, it wouldn't be very fast. Would it? I mean, wouldn't, that's, mm. wouldn't that just be wasting well, a bunch of CPU cycles? It, I think as long as they had a database server, and this would actually get you out of the licensing of SQL Server. You well, could that's say, an even okay, worse problem. Then the database server is somewhere else. We've got to configure the connection to the database server. No, no, but that part's not that hard. I mean, putting the schema in, and I mean, that's pretty trivial, don't you think? No. I mean, that's what we do with Fogbugs all day long, and it just drives us crazy. I mean, it's like basically really? a full-time person. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Because of the support. Because what happens is you got your SQL just, server. Even if it's just the database, set though? Some, yeah. You've just set, the database. Everything else is pre-configured. All yeah. you've got to do is provide a database. The yeah. They don't... Because what happens is that people set there these global options in SQL Server, and they set them in funny ways, you know, collation options, and God only knows what. And really? yeah, Surprise. yeah, there's just there's just options in SQL Server, and they set them wrong. Or here was the problem when people were throwing that thing on an Exchange Server, Exchange Server, and probably some other Microsoft products too. I think possibly their Team Server. Um, they work on the assumption that they are the only thing running on a machine, and they tell you you must run this on a dedicated machine. You cannot have Exchange mm-hmm. Server on a machine that's doing anything else. Uh, they tell you this time and time again, and people ignore that. And the reason is that Exchange Server, knowing that it's going to be the only thing running on the machine, checks out how much hardware memory is available and then takes it all. Right. It's just the way Exchange Server likes to work. It's like, ah, you know what? I'm going to manage the memory. Thank you very much. Somebody's not going to get a bunch of calls about how this is wrong, but it seems to do that. And so the minute you put, uh, you know, I don't know, Tetris on that machine, you start swapping like crazy. And, and, and the whole system slows to crawl. Well, again, this is where you guys have more, much more experience with this than I do. I mean, I, I would have totally guessed that having just the SQL Server part be something the customer provides would be acceptable, but it sounds like that's hardly any better. Yeah, I all. mean, we've been doing that with Fogbugs, but it's just it, it creates a, a level of headaches that we don't want to create. I mean, doesn't it sound sure. more enticing just to get a box shipped to you? It does. It does, and certainly if you want lots of performance, and certainly for the amount they're paying, I would... Right. They probably want some performance, right? Yeah. Um, although I kind of question, based on, you know, we run the public website, which I don't know how you would have a company that would get more traffic than, than we have. And yeah. it doesn't actually take that much hardware. Right. Um, we don't, so. We're not going to need a killer box. It's, you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of server. Yeah. Um, well, here's the, now, here are a couple of problems that our system administrator brought up. Number one, like, what happens if, like, who, who maintains that machine? And I've been thinking, we do. And you have to give us remote access using one of those remote access cards that goes Oh, yeah, that's slot. great. Yeah, if you can come in remotely, that's perfect. We come in remotely and we keep it running. So basically, if there are service packs and upgrades and stuff like that, that's just on our to-do list, and that's why you're paying us monthly to keep yes. that thing live and shiny and happy and up-to-date. Uh, what our system in says is, you know, there is no company in the world that's going to allow that. <laughs> on a private server in their data center. Probably. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's the con. <laughs> is that yeah. They're just not going to allow this, really. And, and then the question uh-huh. is, like, okay, who's going to make the backups for... Who's going to back this thing up? And I was thinking, uh, I guess we would, but how would we... We'd have to pull the data off-site somehow. Wow. Starts yeah, this gets really weird the more you think about it. Yeah. Hmm. It's almost like you could just wish you could just force them to do the hosted version. <laughs> Yeah, but we can't because they want they want can't. it for their for their confidential internal. Yeah, uh, we may just have to go the. You might just have to walk away from that part of the business because I mean, how do you satisfy all those competing desires? I don't know if you can. Well, this is really and look. I mean, the truth is, it's no different than you know selling Oracle, right? It's Oracle. Yeah, but do you want to be in the position? I mean, you have do you have a sales staff? Do you have like support people that are going to fly out or? Yeah, I mean. 
it's a whole different no. business model. I mean, it's like a consulting it business model. It's uh, it's it's kind of more than that. It's the solution provider enterprise software kind of kind of model. It's sort of, Gosh, and it's what you need to do if you want to sell to those really big companies. I mean, the the truth is, we could sell this to, um, you know, most of the Fortune 500 could use something like this in house as their sort of internal knowledge store. Like, let's say you're a big global international accounting firm. You have accountants in every single office, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of in house knowledge, and they have a lot of value out of that. And there would be a lot of value if an if an accountant in New York City, you know, needs to do some research on you know, what the tax code in New, New Brunswick, Canada says about blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, they can do that research, but this is a $300 an hour accountant in New York City, or they can just post it on their little stack exchange site and let somebody in Burma getting paid 13 cents a year, uh-huh. sorry, Myanmar, uh, do that research. I'm sorry, that's not a real outsourcing country because it's a crazy military dictatorship. Let's go with uh, Turkmenistan. And uh, since I've already insulted Turkmenistan once in this podcast. Several times, actually. And that's kind of a more efficient way of doing it. So this would be just the perfect internal tool for one of those global organizations or even any kind of large organization uh, that's kind of a knowledge-based organization, international law firm. Well, this is a good business of software conversation. I mean... Yeah. If we had the theoretical business of software stack exchange, this would be a great topic for that site. Oh, yeah. Somebody should make one of those. Damn. Yeah. Somebody should make one of those. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, now that we've raised the question, um, maybe I'll ask our listeners to go to blog.stackoverload.com, post their opinions in the show notes there in the comments. Yeah. If you have any opinions about selling software as an appliance versus selling it as a uh, software that you have to install versus uh, – I mean, we could sell it as consulting wear, which is – the business model where theoretically it's software, but you don't actually get a disk. You get some guy that comes and he sets you up with a server and Gosh, gets it all working. To me, this is like anathema. Like this is where the oh, Craigslist the model way. starts to become really attractive of just selling directly to the public. Although selling the public yeah. has its own problems. One of, one of my favorite quotes from that article is, here's the lesson. The public is a MFer. <laughs> right. <laughs> like in other words, if, if your audience is the public, that's really painful too. But we can avoid all that corporate pain that you're talking about by right. just going direct to the public. So there is still, I'm glad I don't have these problems. Yeah. I mean, the truth is with big companies, uh, when you're selling to the enterprise as opposed to selling to consumers, 80% of them are going to really want things to be on, on their site. They're not yeah. really going to go for this other model. And the thing I've heard constantly from people at, uh, at um, what's the big software as a service company? Salesforce. Salesforce. The thing I've heard constantly from people at Salesforce is their number. I mean, they get they're, – they're, they're doing a great business doing what they do, but their number one request is, I, I love this. I just need to be able to host it on my own data center or I, I can't use it. So probably the biggest thing that they could do to increase their sales would be to have some kind of in-house version of Salesforce. But they already have a huge business. I mean – Yeah, well, so they don't care, I guess. Well, that's, that's kind of my point. It's like, Maybe. do you care? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's, it's a really hard problem. Sure is, and then then like you you're in the awkward position of being involved with your customers' problems. Like your customers' problems become your problems. Yeah, but look how much they pay you twenty five hundred dollars a month. That's a lot. You get four customers like that, and that pays for one support person. And the truth know. is, one support person could easily support you know fifteen of those customers. So it's actually a pretty profitable business if you if you got the energy to do it. This sounds like another one of those those packs with Satan though. I'm gonna give you like tons and tons <laughs> of money to do this really unpleasant thing that you're gonna not like. That's where there's uh you know where there's uh muck there's brass. Is that the expression? I, I guess. I mean you know my solution to that was was the whole open source angle. It was like okay you guys own it, you know it's just open source. It's a totally different thing. That's obviously. not really a solution in the sense that it doesn't make you any money. Well it's a solution in that they can do whatever <laughs> they want now and it's no longer my problem. Yeah I guess so. And theoretically, it's no they could opportunity. Well, but they could then contribute code back, or they could have custom forks, or they could do whatever at that point. That's one way to solve the problem. All but, right, yeah. I'm out of things on my list. Done. Okay. Do we have questions? Did we do. We have an interesting listener question, which I'm going to play now, and we'll we'll, we'll lead into. Um, uh, yes, it's uh, from David do Smalley. It. Do you know David Smalley? Uh, um, I don't doc, know. Doc type. Oh, David Smalley. Okay. Go ahead. Do you remember that doc? T- t- uh, tell them what doc type is. Uh, Doctype is the, the um, it's a League of Justice site, so it's affiliated with us. It's to serve designers, and it's uh, HTML, CSS with very strong 
screenshot, auto-generating screenshot and browser and email client support. So when you're having some weird markup problem, you can go on Doctype, uh, submit your question, uh, and actually have it render the screenshots of like it's rendering like this in Safari and like this in IE6 and you know in Outlook it looks like this. It's just easier to troubleshoot the problem with these screenshots. And the guys who did Doctype specialize in this this screenshot service. Cool. Yeah. All right. So here's a question. Hi, John and Jeff. It's David Smalley, one of the developers behind Doctype.com. First off, thanks for the warm reception of the League of Justice. We were blown away by the response we got, and uh, we've really started to develop a great community on the site now. After listening to last week's podcast, I had a question. Um, you mentioned you're switching to HA proxy to load balance the site, but I wondered if you considered using a reverse proxy cache. I'm not a believer in premature optimization, but before launching Doctype, I decided to try and cache as much as possible on the site to avoid any downtime embarrassment when you announced us on the Stack Overflow blog. I set up the Varnish reverse proxy cache, which load balances between our servers and is now serving about 75% of our traffic straight from the cache, including all hits from Google, incoming Google search traffic, our sitemap, and for anyone who isn't logged into the site. I believe our sites closely follow the usage patterns of Wikipedia, which has already demonstrated good success in caching nearly all requests to users who aren't logged in. Is there a reason you don't want to use reverse proxy caching, or was it just something you hadn't considered? Uh, so the answer to that question is we, we already do that. Uh, we've been doing that for a while. Da, 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 da. It, okay, that was easy. <laughs> well, in that there's this huge disconnect between logged-in users and anonymous users, in that if you're an anonymous user, we cache the crap out of everything that you retrieve, mm-hmm. uh, benefit being that ninety more than 90% of our traffic is anonymous users, so... Uh, the more you can cache, obviously, the faster things are going to go. You don't want to hit the database. and I mean, there's nothing to display. Think about it. If you're not logged in, mm-hmm. what, what do I have to query from the database for you? Well, the, really things, like the number Just of the, points and stuff like that may have changed since. Right, but if you're an anonymous user, the odds of you hitting that page over and over are low. So we cache, I think, for like five minutes. Okay. I don't know, it's not five minutes. But if you go to a question page as a logged out user um, and you just sit there hitting F5, um, to refresh the page, all those hits will come directly out of the, uh, the the kernel cache in IS. There used to be, people used to make these things called app accelerators. Did they give up on that stupid idea? Uh, I don't know. Do you remember what, what these were? Not really. This is, let me see if I can try to summarize it, and as usual, I will butcher it, and then I'll get all kinds of nasty email about people that say, oh, here's another industry told us to do anything about <laughs> this one is called App Accelerators, and I don't know if they ever really succeeded, but during the dot-com boom or shortly thereafter, there was this idea that you would build this piece of hardware called an App Accelerator for a company. If you had a web web app, like let's say Stack Overflow, you would put the App Accelerator between the web app and the public, and you wouldn't do any coding, no changes, nothing, and it would magically make your web app faster. Mm-hmm. And the way it would do this, even though... It's beca- and, 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 and the, uh, the insight was this. The insight was that in order to, a typical application will run a lot of CPU cycles building lots of different parts of the page that actually don't change that often. And if you can detect those in the app accelerator, the app accelerator says, oh, you know, you got a little section here that is just showing the current date. And that seems to change every day, but there's no reason to calculate that every time. Then it would take those bits and pieces of HTML not even entire HTML pages, but just chunks of the page, like certain divs. And it would be like, then this div doesn't seem like it's changing. I'm going to start caching the hell out of that div. Isn't, that seems like a really bad idea, because isn't, isn't like cache yes. invalidation considered like one of the hardest problems in computer science, like just figuring out if your cache is valid or not? Yeah, well, I seem to agree with you in, in principle, and I don't think any of these things ever worked. Well, I know that when we do caching... <laughs> but we they said to... they did. I mean, maybe we... it was snake oil. We have to be really, really careful. What sure. makes it easy, as David was alluding to... Anonymous users make it easy for you because there's very little on the page that's custom for those types of users. When they're not logged in, they don't have to see all kinds of interesting no, information. No, they, they don't have to see the login information. Yeah, yeah I can imagine probably Facebook does the same. Well, like, Facebook doesn't, oh, it doesn't really, have anonymous users. It doesn't really have a whole lot of anonymous, which is a whole different discussion. But okay. Yeah. Uh, and but then yeah. as far the other part of David's question that I'm a little confused about is HA proxy is a reverse proxy. That's what it is. That's what it does. So I'm a little confused about that part of his question. Um, in that, so the way it works now, a request comes into the Stack Overflow IP. That's actually HA high availability proxy. HA proxy then decides 
currently based on a hash of the IP address, which server it's actually going to go to. So on our internal network, a request comes in from HAProxy, which is running in a, v- a virtual machine, to the physical server, and then it spits the data back across. Um, and then ultimately that goes back out to the client. So we, the HAProxy is sort of a gatekeeper for all the data in the system at this point. There's no way to directly access the web servers uh, from the public internet. Everything goes through HAProxy. Um, that's Done. that's currently the configuration. Okay. There's all these really weird uh, algorithms you can use to decide to load balance and stuff like that. We're using a pretty primitive one, which is the IP hash, which isn't perfect because I've seen it. It does about 60-40 at times. It doesn't do a perfect 50-50 split, but it's good enough mm-hmm. for what we need to do. 60-40? What? Wait, wait, say that again? In other words, there'll be like 500 connections on one server and 400 on the oh, other. Okay. Do you have any kind of uh, a cache hit ratio? Can you tell us what percentage of, of pages are served from the cache versus going to the server? Not. I, I think there's performance counters that tell you. I don't. It's really high. I, I, we have actually played with the performance counters, not recently, because we, we haven't had a huge number. So that of million page views a day that we're doing, the servers themselves are probably only doing a percentage of those. Well, before we even went live with the site, I was very gung-ho about optimizing the anonymous user experience, like optimizing the crap out of it, right. in that as much as possible had to be cached. We, right. I wouldn't even launch the site and you remember when we launched, we had a ton of traffic, but the site stayed up. Yeah. And that's, that is, honestly, that's why. Because if the, you don't spend a lot yeah. of time optimizing the anonymous user experience, you're screwed. We're actually, you're going to um, fall over. We're seeing on Stack Exchange that people are making the little Stack Exchange site, and they're trying it out, and they're kind of poking around. And things aren't showing up, and they're like, wait a minute, I just posted that. Why didn't it show up? And I think usually <laughs> the answer is because uh, it's cached. Yes. And it's well, take... you guys can adjust. A lot of that's set in the web config, most yeah. of that stuff. And well, if not, we can, we can move it in there. I think what we might do is um, distinguish between high-volume and low-volume stack exchange sites somehow. So yeah. that uh, low-volume stack exchange sites do less caching. And there's certain other things that we discover, like there's certain rules that you put in place. Um, uh, here, here's an example of something on stack exchange I'm probably going to want to change. Uh, if you post... Uh, if you post some, you're only allowed to comment once every 30 seconds, and you're only allowed to put new posts up every. If you're if you're a new user, you're only allowed to post new questions. I think what is every 20 minutes or something, or right, something like that. Those are all configurable things in the web config, though. Oh, okay. Because um, uh, we we might want to just exempt administrators. What we call administrators are the people that are the administrators of a Stack Exchange site might want to be exempted from all those rules because they're going to create a new site and they're just going to want to sort of stock it with a little bit of data just to try things out. And right. it's sort of annoying to tell an administrator who's logged on, oh, you might be spamming us. Right. Right. Yeah. This is kind of what I alluded to. I mean, we do try to make tons of stuff configurable and I think everything you, you listed with maybe the exception of one thing is probably configurable Okay. Uh, behind the scenes. Uh, but we also have community moderators, and right. we feel like we should, okay, <laughs> there's a philosophy thing here of, I'm subject to the same CAPTCHA limits that, that new users are. Why? Because uh, the <laughs> if the account is compromised, first of all, then okay. we don't want an administrator to be spamming the system. But also, it's a, it was a little bit undemocratic to me that, that I would have the ability to post you know, more comments, as many comments as I wanted, and regular users could. Well, it's not I meant felt- to be like, uh, you, you must not post any more comments. It's, it's meant to av- avoid scripts and demons and bots. And- well, kind of, but it's also meant to be a cool-down period. If you're really commenting more than <laughs> once every 30 seconds, what are you really saying? I, I, nobody's really that fast. <laughs> it's like, okay, Linus, get your blanket and go sit in the corner and take a time. Yeah, out. a little bit. It is kind of a little bit like that. And we're trying to, I mean, part of these are societal <laughs> controls. Just a little bit too excited there. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything so, you didn't die? Uh, usually at the beginning of the show is where you tell me the list of interesting things that happened this week, and now we're at the end of the show, and we still haven't gotten to that. Well, the stickers, that's the most interesting thing oh, imaginable. Please. We covered that first. If you have any <laughs> questions for us for the Back, Ho- Back Over Stack podcast, search over. Send an email with an Ogvorbis MP3 file to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the podcast hotline at 646 826 Eight seven nine. Please call with questions and, and conversation topics because otherwise we're going to repeat ourselves and that would suck.
No, we can't have that. There's a transcript wiki where um, volunteers from around the world volunteer their spare time to write down transcripts of the show for the benefits of the hearing impaired, and that it will be linked to from the show notes, which, as always, include uh, hyperlinks to any kind of interesting topics that we've mentioned during the show, and that is located at blog.stecoflow.com. See you next week. See you next week. Did you get the meta stickers to put on uh I did not. Michael's. Okay. They're coming. Put them on his nose. They they might be, you know, it takes a long time for mail to get from here to there. And New York is sort of a scary mail city. <laughs> just a cross country thing. No, it's just that like it gets here and then the it's 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 Newman from Seinfeld, right? That's that's oh, our mailman. Mail. Yeah. <laughs> He's got it all in bags in his bedroom. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.